I'm the campus minister with RUF over here at William & Mary. And uh, this morning, we're going to be looking at the book of Acts, Acts chapter 8. Uh, Jesus has appeared to his disciples and ascended, and he's given them uh, the promise and the command that they would preach the gospel and that that gospel would spread throughout the world. At this point in the story, the church is growing rapidly. They're seeing a whole lot of fruit, but then persecution has broken out. And we're going to pick up just after the stoning of Stephen here in Acts chapter 8. So I hear you flipping your pages. I think you're mostly there. Acts chapter 8, sorry, verse 26. Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. This is a desert place. And he rose and went, and there was an Ethiopian, a eunuch, a court official of Candace, queen of the Ethiopians, who was in charge of all her treasure. He had come to Jerusalem to worship and was returning, seated in his chariot, and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. And the spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. So Philip ran to him and heard him reading Isaiah the prophet and asked, do you understand what you are reading? And he said, how can I unless someone guides me? And he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. Now the passage of the scripture that he was reading was this. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shears is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation? For his life is taken away from the earth. And the eunuch said to Philip, About whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this? About himself or about someone else? Then Philip opened his mouth and began, beginning with this scripture, he told him the good news about Jesus. And as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down into the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. And when they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord carried Philip away, and the eunuch saw him no more, and went on his way rejoicing. But Philip found himself at Azotus, and he passed through. As he passed through, he preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Let's pray, and we'll jump in. Lord God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that we get to gather week after week and hear it and study it together. And Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would speak to us and transform us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Rejection is painful, and I know this because Forbes magazine said so. It's an article from Forbes on the pain of rejection. Whether you've been told no thank you for a job opportunity, you become estranged from a partner or friend, or even been unfollowed on a social media or dating site, your brain has to process being rejected. And neuroscience suggests that it literally hurts. Although the brain does not process emotional pain and physical pain identically, research on neural pathways suggests that there is substantial overlap between the experience of physical and social pain. The cascading events that occur and regions activated in our brains and our reactions to, the acute, phys to acute physical pain are similar. 
Further, it seems the impact may not be limited to just how the brain processes the emotions and pain associated with rejection, but that real heartbreak can actually take a toll on your IQ. According to research from Case Western University, exposure to rejection led participants in a study to have an immediate drop in reasoning by 30% and an IQ score drop by 25%. Because humans are social creatures by nature, heartbreak, loss, and the feelings associated with being left out are particularly difficult to process. And because emotional wounds are invisible, Anguish, distress, and stress can be difficult to understand or explain to our peers. Thus, a broken heart really does hurt, and it really can take a while to heal. Emotional pain in some studies registers in the brain equal to or greater than a broken bone. So rejection hurts. Uh, you and I didn't actually need a neuroscientist to tell us that, but it is to say simply that pain is painful and measurably painful, and that this sort of pain doesn't heal quickly. It can actually be more difficult, more distressing, more long-term, take longer to cure and to heal. And we all know the pain of being rejected. We've all been guilty, also, of causing that pain in other people, doing the rejecting. We learn it from the earliest of ages in our families and in the schoolyard of who's in and who's out, who we play with and who we don't. We felt the warmth of acceptance of being an insider, that warm, fuzzy glow that we get of being in the know, and the pain and the hurt of being the outsider, of the one who doesn't belong. And in the story in Acts chapter 8, the reason I'm reading this to you is a story of a quintessential outsider this Ethiopian. And we'll see why as we go along. So as we look at this passage, first I want to look at the reader, this Ethiopian eunuch, the reader reading the Bible as he rides along in his chariot. Well, what do we know about him? Actually, quite a bit. It's pretty amazing how much the passage tells us. But first thing we know about him is that he's privileged, is what we might call him. He's got power and influence. He's Part of the royal court in Ethiopia, the treasurer, it tells us, for Candace, which is a hereditary or royal title, kind of like Caesar, the queen mother, the queen of the Ethiopians. So he's right there in the royal court. So he's got a lot of power, influence, sway. He's highly educated. How do we know that? He's reading. At this point in, in human history, 5% or less of the human population was literate. So he can read. That's pretty amazing. Um, He's wealthy. He's the treasurer for the queen of Ethiopia. And also, he's riding in a chariot. He has a chariot. Also, he owns an Isaiah scroll, which would have been exorbitantly expensive. Um, he could buy whatever he wants. Now, you might say, what makes that person an outsider? I thought you were just talking about how he doesn't belong and how much that hurts. Well, actually, power and wealth can isolate someone. It's very lonely. Uh, my wife and I have been watching a documentary about the royal family and them talking about the pain, particularly Prince Harry, of the paparazzi always being around and not ever really knowing who he could trust. Does it, do these people want to be my friends? Because they know me? Or they just want to be famous for a moment? It can isolate you. Do these people want to know me? and love me, or do they just want something from me? But second, in a more obvious way, he is very much an outsider. 
outsider to the faith community, specifically of Israel, he would be very much an outsider to Philip and the early church. Why? First, well, he is a foreigner. At this point, the gospel has been strictly a Jewish thing so far in the story of Acts. It's been begun in Judea and a little bit into Samaria, but at this point in the story, the converts to Jesus are primarily formerly faithful Jews. So he's a foreigner. He's from what the text calls Ethiopia, what we would call modern Sudan today. He's a black African. He's an alien to Israel ethnically. And uh, this area that he's from, what what the passage calls Ethiopia, in the Midrash, the Jewish commentary on the Old Testament, it referred to Ethiopia as, quote, the ends of the earth. It's way over there, very far away. More on that later. Secondly, he's a eunuch. Today, we might even call him a sexual minority. He doesn't neatly fit into any specific category. This was a common ancient practice for serving in royal courts. And yet, at the same time, while he would have been privileged to be able to serve in the royal court at the time, he would have carried the shame of being a eunuch, of not having offspring, of not having the ability to marry and have his own children. And he doesn't really fit neatly anywhere into any sort of category. He doesn't belong. He's an outsider. And spiritually and religiously, he would be alienated from the Jewish people. Because it says here in the passage that he had come to Jerusalem to worship, which would have been about a 30-day journey. So he travels from far away, and he comes to Jerusalem to worship, we read in verse 27. But as a eunuch and an outsider, according to the law in Deuteronomy, he would not have been allowed to enter into the temple. So can you imagine that? He has learned about this God, Yahweh, somehow, some ways, probably had some of the other scriptures, and he goes there to learn and to worship, but because he is ceremonially unclean and a Gentile, he is not allowed to enter into the temple to practice the worship that he traveled there to do. Can you imagine that? It's hard for us to get our heads around what that would be like. You can imagine going on a long journey, say you know, the family saves up for years and years and you travel to Europe and you go to London and you want to, it's Christmas and you want to go to King's College and be part of Lessons and Carols or something like that. And you've, you've traveled that whole way and then they don't let you in the building because you don't have the right ticket. It might be something like that, but it'd be much more devastating. Hard for us to get our heads around. And whether he knew in advance or not that he would be allowed in, it doesn't really matter. He would have been outcast, rejected. And now he's riding home from that long journey, and he's reading Isaiah out loud. It could be that he already owned this copy of Isaiah, but more likely, a lot of commentators were speculating here, but it could be very likely at this point in his journey that He bought an Isaiah scroll while in Jerusalem because that's where you got those things. They didn't have Amazon, right? He could have ordered it back in Ethiopia. And he's reading it on his ride home because he's searching, because he wants to know the Lord. Quick application for us. Are you aware that those that you and I inside the church might consider outsiders and aliens and strangers are spiritually interested and curious about our God? that they have perhaps heard of him and know something of him and are asking questions and at some level are searching for God and are eager for someone to explain it to them. Or if you're here today and you're a skeptic, 
You were searching and hungry and perhaps confused about God. And the Bible says that about all of us, that we were all created to know him. And the, the Forbes magazine uh, article that I read, it said that we are by nature social creatures. The Bible argues that the reason rejection hurts so much is because we are made in the image of God by God, a God who is relational in and of himself. And we were created for a relationship. And so when we experience the lack of it, it hurts us to the core more than a broken bone. And that we will create a substitute for him if we do not find him. We'll create these counterfeit gods to replace him, to give our life a sense of purpose and meaning. Are you searching for God in all sorts of places? And maybe that's why you're here today. I work with college students on campus and current generation. We love talking about the generations, right? Gen Z and the kids these days and everything wrong with them, right? And they are the least Christian generation in American history. Uh, the least religious. They're spiritual, but not religious oftentimes. But here's the interesting thing about it. This generation, when surveyed, they are less threatened by spiritual conversations than previous generations. You know, the, like, the rules of the Thanksgiving table that we end up breaking, you know, don't talk about religion, don't talk about politics, right? They report that they actually find, 50% of them say that they actually report feeling calm when talking about religious topics or spiritual conversation. And some even say not just that they feel calm, but they find that conversation calming. It's soothing. It's like, oh, that would be, you know what would be nice to relax from all the chatter and talk about something deep? Think about it. Makes sense, right? And it's true of the younger generation. And it's probably true of us. You know, we all talk about the kids and their phones. They're all addicted to their phone. Who's addicted to whose phone? It's all of us, right? We all are in the buzz. We're all in the chatter. We're all in the echo chambers together, and we all need a break from it. Maybe stopping and talking about something deep with our neighbors would be calming for them and for us, but more importantly, would be displaying the love of Christ and worshiping Him and glorifying Him. Because the biggest reason that People report for not talking about these conversations, not having these calming conversations, not learning more about Christianity, is that their Christian friends don't bring it up, but they wish that they would. How about that? Who in your life do you think is so unlikely, so on the edge, so on the outside, that they would never be interested in the God that we worship at this church? And what would it look like to begin to start that conversation? What if they are, in fact, interested in questioning? And if you're a skeptic, we want you to be here, and we're glad that you're here, and we're so thankful for it. And your Christian friends want you to know Jesus, and maybe you're just scared to bring it up. But we'd love to talk to you about it. Let's keep going. we got to watch the clock here. Okay. Let's keep going. Man, we got three more points. Oh, boy. There's a reader... That's the reader. That was the longest one. And the second is the reading, the reading. Of all the passages he could be reading, he's reading the book of Isaiah in chapter 53, 53 verse 32. Like a sheep, he was led to the slaughter, and like a lamb before its shearer is silent, so he opens not his mouth. In his humiliation, justice was denied him. Who can describe his generation, for his life is taken away from the earth? Think about this man and who he is and what the content of this passage a lamb before his shearer as a eunuch to read that. A man who has been shorn, cut off. 
And then in his humiliation, justice was denied him. And he knows the humiliation. He knows what that is like. And then it's not in our passage, but the next verse in Isaiah goes on. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. That word crush is the same word that is used in Deuteronomy in describing the reasons why eunuchs would not be allowed in. It's one of the two options, whether he has been cut off or crushed. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So again, that word offspring in the ears of the eunuch as he is reading this out loud, he would never have children. And here he is talking about this one who would be crushed and who would have offspring. And he's reading it and he's asking questions. And there are these servant passages all through Isaiah that have confused and still confuse scholars to this day where he's talking about the servant of the Lord. And sometimes it sounds like a plural, like it's the people of God. And sometimes it seems like it's talking about the prophet Isaiah himself. And sometimes it's like this other person. And who would that possibly be? Chapter 52 talks about purify yourself, but then the servant will sprinkle many nations and cleanse them. In chapter 53, the servant is taking on the sins of the people onto himself. What does this mean? The eunuch said to Philip, verse 34, about whom I ask you, does the prophet say this about himself or about someone else? And then Philip opened his mouth and began with this scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. Quick application. Are we ready to explain the gospel when asked? And are we able to start somewhere in the Bible? Because notice, like, this is a pretty golden one, right? Isaiah 53. It's kind of a layup for Philip in some ways in terms of attaching it to Jesus. But can you start really anywhere in the scripture and show how God has been working from the very beginning to bring about the redemption and salvation of his people? It's a thing to think about. But we, have, we got to keep rolling. Two final quick points. We've seen the reader and the reading, and now the result and the reason. First, the result. The result, what happens as a result of this conversation, a result of this moment? First is the conversion of this Ethiopian, his baptism. Verse 36, as they were going along the road, they came to some water, and the eunuch said, see, here is water. What prevents me from being baptized? And he commanded the chariot to stop, and they both went down to the water, Philip and the eunuch, and he baptized him. This pattern in Acts, it doesn't use the word directly that the man believed and repented, but he wants to be baptized, and those things always go together in Acts. And then, of course, a work of the Spirit happening at the same time. This ceremony of cleansing, of purification from sin, it also meant membership among the people of God, just as circumcision did in the Old Testament. And so what we see in this moment is this unclean outsider becomes a cleansed insider. He's washed clean and he's one of us, part of the family of God, which would have been a, a shock to Philip. And we'll see later in Acts, in the next chapters, we look at Cornelius, the next couple of chapters, uh, that Philip and the other disciples, they were not expecting Gentiles to just be one of us like this. The second thing, the second result we see is joy. It says the man went away rejoicing. They came up out of the water. The spirit of the Lord carried Philip away. So here's the spirit showing up. And the eunuch saw him no more. And he went on his way rejoicing, which is one of the fruits of the spirit is joy. So he's filled with joy and he goes along on his way. And then finally, third, more mission. 
for Philip. Verse 40, but Philip found himself at Azotus as he passed through. He preached the gospel to all the towns until he came to Caesarea. Again, because the Spirit of God is carrying him there. So there's conversion, rejoicing, and in then more proclamation of the gospel. And finally, what is the reason? The reason, why did this happen? How did this come about? Um, First, just humanly speaking, it came about because of Philip's eager obedience. Do you notice that in this passage? It's all through it. Philip does quite a bit here. First, he goes to a desolate place, right? He's commanded to go to a desert place. And this word desert place um, in the Septuagint, it's the same word that's used for wilderness in the Old Testament. Um, It's the middle of nowhere, and he obeys. But the reason I point out the word that's used, Abraham is called and goes into the wilderness. And then Israel, of course, wanders in the wilderness And then Jesus, in his 40 days of temptation, goes into the wilderness, a desolate desert place. And then Philip, following this pattern all through the Bible, is called, reasons not told, just go to this desert place because I said so. And like Abraham, he obeys and he goes. Second, I say he's eager to obey because when the Spirit says, go and join that chariot, you know, this man's riding by, reading out loud, what does it say he does? He runs. <laughs> you picture that? There's a chariot going by, a man reading aloud, and Philip's running beside him. <laughs> do you understand what you're saying? You know, hey, <laughs> do you know what you're... <sighs> yeah. And then, uh, I love it. And then, you know, he asks, so he has the, the courage to ask him, and... You know, the Ethiopian eunuch says, you know, I normally don't pick up hitchhikers, but I've got a good feeling about you. And he says, you know, come on up. And then he, of course, explains. He tells him about Jesus. He tells him what this passage is really about. That's so much love and devotion and obedience on Philip's part. It's this beautiful thing. But that's not the biggest reason. The biggest reason that this happens is because of God's pursuit. There's Philip's obedience, which is so important, but it's also ultimately God's pursuit. First of all, persecution has come in the previous passage, and it says that the church has been scattered about. So initially, the gospel was just remaining in the, again, as I pointed out before, in the Jewish world. But God brings persecution, which is this suffering and this negative thing, but he does it in such a way that it pushes the gospel out further, which sets Philip up to be called here. And then, of course, the angel of the Lord literally tells him to go. Now, an angel of the Lord said to Philip, rise up and go towards the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. Sit in this desert place. Go to this specific location. And then, of course, the Holy Spirit. In verse 29, the Spirit said to Philip, go over and join this chariot. My point is that none of this was Philip's idea. The persecution wasn't the church's idea. Going to this location wasn't Philip's idea. Running up to the chariot wasn't Philip's idea. It was the Lord's. Because God was seeking this man out in the middle of nowhere in the wilderness. And then it just so happens at the moment that Philip arrives that he is reading Isaiah chapter 53. And just as he comes to faith in a desert place, there's water, there's an oasis. So he can be baptized. 
Because Jesus told his disciples in chapter 1, you will be my witnesses starting in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And this Ethiopian man, whom the Midrash calls from a place that they call the ends of the earth. Here's the gospel. Hubert Humphrey, former vice president of the United States, he died. He's no longer with us. When he died, um, there was a funeral, and everyone was welcome, and everyone was called to come. Not everyone, but all the important people, not us. <laughs> um, and uh, all the former dignitaries were invited, and they were welcome, except for former President Richard Nixon, who was technically allowed to come, but he wasn't really wanted there. And it was awkward, and he's still living in the shame and humiliation of Watergate. But then sitting President Jimmy Carter was there, of course, and he saw Nixon standing off by himself in the corner of the room. And he made a beeline for him, and he grabbed his arm in a handshake and then pulled him in, witnesses say, into an embrace and hugged him and said, Welcome home, Mr. President. And at that point, the atmosphere of the party changed, and everyone came over and greeted former President Nixon. This incident was reported by Newsweek magazine, which wrote this. If there was a turning point in Nixon's long ordeal in the wilderness, that was really interesting. It was that moment and that small gesture of love, compassion, and forgiveness. And God in Christ, in his gospel, said to this man and to all of us, no matter how rejected, alienated, alone, hurt, or wrong we are in our wilderness, he has sought us out. He reaches out to this man and he grabs him and embraces him and says, welcome home. You belong. You are with me. You're one of us. Now, I'd love to read to you the next several chapters of Isaiah, but it would take a while. But I like to think that after this moment, the man, as he got back on his chariot and goes back on his way, the text tells us rejoicing, I find it highly, highly likely that he kept reading Isaiah. I, I can't imagine that he didn't. Still had a long way to go. And a page and a half later in chapter 56, I want you to listen to what he would have read. Isaiah 56, verse 3. Let not the foreigner who has joined himself to the Lord say, the Lord shall surely separate me from his people. Here he is, the foreigner. And let not the eunuch say, behold, I am a dry tree. For thus says the Lord to the eunuchs who keep my Sabbaths and who choose the things that please me and to hold fast to my covenant, I will give in him a house within my walls, a monument and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be, wait for it, cut off. Think about this man reading this moments after being baptized. And the foreigners who joined themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants. Everyone who keeps the Sabbath and does not profane it and holds to my covenant, 
These I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and their sacrifices, the ones he was not allowed to make a couple of days prior, will be accepted on my altar. For my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the peoples. The Lord God who gathers the outcasts of Israel declares, I will gather yet others in to him to the hymn of Isaiah 53. The Lord is still doing this now. You and I would not be in this room. I'm a Gentile too. And the Lord has gathered me in and he is continuing to reach to the outsider, to the unlikely, to the unlovely, to the one who feels they do not belong. And he is inviting us in and calling us to this savior of Isaiah 53, to our Lord himself. Let's come to him. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are so good, that you are so kind, that you pursue us in your love, in your generosity, in your kindness, and that you gather yet others in. Will you gather more? Bring us close to you, close to your embrace, and may we wrap others into it as well. May we reach to the lost, to the outsider, and to the lonely with the love that you've given us, we pray. Amen.